it's been a few months since I've been in this area of North Fort Myers. Last time I was here was in June, reporting on the heat wave. And this part of North Fort Myers is a bit more run down. Um, the trailer parks are filled with old mobile homes that are kind of stacked close together. There's a bit less of the blue tarps on the roofs than last time, which is a good thing that the blue tarps are show that there was hurricane damage to the roofs and it's been almost a year and there's still quite a lot of blue tarps around, but I do notice less than when I was here in June. That's climate reporter Brianna Sachs during a trip to Fort Myers last month. It's been just over a year since Hurricane Ian hit this city on the Gulf Coast of Florida. The storm caused more than $112 billion in damages. It was the third costliest hurricane to ever hit the U.S. It killed at least 150 people and destroyed or damaged nearly 35,000 homes. Brianna was there in the aftermath of the storm, and she's gone back every few months since then to visit this one particular motel. The uh, El Rancho Motel is kind of on the main drag. It's hard to miss. It's this bright pink collection of old uh, kind of stucco buildings in a semicircle that looks like a giant flamingo should be there. I'm pulling up to the El Rancho Motel now and uh, Color TV by RCA sign is still there. Um, yeah, I wonder if that sign was always kind of askew and empty like that or if that was a Hurricane Ian thing. For Brianna, this motel revealed something about the aftermath of the storm. So I wanted to go back there because in the weeks, months, years after a disaster, there's all these people who were already living on the edge and they disappear and we don't hear from them. We don't really know what happens to them. We don't know where they go, where they end up. They end up at places like the El Rancho Motel. The motel has become a lifeline for around a dozen families who lost their homes. And yet, many have come to feel trapped in their rooms. They're not supposed to be homes for people for a year, mm -hmm. and they desperately want to leave. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. It's Monday, October 2nd. Today, a visit to the El Rancho Motel. Good to see you. How are you doing? Good. We meet a family that's been living here for the past year. How long have you guys been here? Since October. Since October. And hear what their story reveals about the realities of disaster recovery.
Brianna, when you were visiting the El Rancho Motel, you spent a lot of time with one family in particular, the Lopez family. Tell us about them. I met George in the summer, and then I got to know him and his family a lot more this most recent visit in September. There are five of them living in the small-ish motel room. Papi, I need you to drink some water. We got football practice. What time's football practice? Uh, There's George, the dad, Nemesis, his wife, uh, which is an amazing name. Amazing name. Yeah, spelled even cooler. <laughs> There's two boys, a five-year-old named Logan and a three-year-old named Josiah. Look at me. That's my dad bike. It's a cool bike. And then Nemesis's grandmother, who has mm-hmm. dementia, along with three dogs. Wow. Yeah. So all of these people and all of their things and all of their clothes and their toys and their dogs and their food are all crammed into this 400-square-foot kind of a one-bedroom place for which they are paying $2,000 a month. There were six people in there at some point. George's older son, Giovanni, from an old uh, past relationship, was, was living there for a few months as well. And they've been living like that for a year. They have been living like that for a whole year. Wow. How did the Lopez family end up in this situation? And what was life like for them before they were in this motel room? They'd been struggling even before Ian to have consistent, affordable housing for a multitude of reasons. They had actually lived in hotels and with friends before, a year before Ian, they finally locked down this trailer park home, which George told me was as perfect as he thought life was going to get for them. It was a home. Everybody had their privacy. Everybody had their own room. The dogs had a yard to run around. Everybody was comfortable. They had a screened-in porch with a lanai, which is a big deal in Florida. (laughs) What Do you know what that one looked like? It's basically like a screened-in outside area. A lot of people in Florida have, so they can just enjoy the space without the bugs. Mm. So this is kind of like, you know... Sounds like paradise. Well, yeah, yeah, it was paradise, but, like, having something like that, like, they had made it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they had, like, gotten established. Uh, We were doing good. We were like, God, finally, no more hotels, you know, no more RVs. A home... And then Ian came and blew everything up, not even a year later. So can you tell us about that day that Hurricane Ian hit? What were the Lopez's doing that day? Was it just another day in their life until it wasn't? I think for most people, they knew that hurricane was coming. They were preparing for it. They, like most Floridians, were like, meh, like, okay, we can weather this. No big deal. They were in the trailer. And then they didn't get flooding. Okay, so Look, can you describe to me what you're showing me? Well, this, that's the, here, this is. Uh, the tree. The tree that fell. Yeah. And George showed me pictures uh, while we were sitting in the motel room. You know, he was flicking through his phone. A huge oak tree fell 
out of nowhere. It tackled the whole house, yeah. like folded it up. That's like from the room, <laughs> from the living room to the kitchen. And it's then, hard to tell there's even a trailer yeah, under there. Yeah, you can't. Jeez. And you were That's, in the house when this yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. They were in the other room, and they had kind of moved to the other room once the wind had started really rattling the trailer. George doesn't know what made them do it. They just decided wow. to, like, switch sides of the trailer, and then this tree just completely crushes it. Oh, my gosh. And so they obviously had to leave. George has this old uh, 2005 Ford pickup truck that, like, sometimes starts, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. So they, they piled all what they could. And then they started driving. And as they were going down the, the freeway... You could see everybody in canoes canoeing to their houses uh, from the back, from the highway. People were getting rides from the highway, getting dropped off on I-75 so they could canoe through the back of the woods to their house. Wow, that's wild. Look at this. And then you look closer in the pictures that he showed me, and there's freeway side. Look. So that's all... That's that's land. Country. That's an exit. Oh, my gosh. So people are canoeing. Yeah, yeah. you'll see the car is floating now. Watch. Look at that. When you see this... Um, oh, man, it was just, heartbreaking. Yeah. It's It was heartbreaking. That sounds unbelievably... Unreal. Uh, unreal and, and harrowing. How common was that experience the day the storm hit or in the days after the storm hit? Do you have a sense of how many people there were like the Lopez's who were in the situation trying to get to dry land, fleeing their homes? Honestly, everyone I talk to in the year I've been reporting on this has a harrowing story. Mm. No one expected it to be that intense. No one expected the floodwaters. The storm was the most expensive damaging one the state has ever seen. They actually upgraded it to a Category 5. It killed, directly and indirectly, 150 people. Mm. So people have a lot of trauma and, and PTSD that still is right at the surface. Like, people cry talking about it to me still now, and it's been a year. They, they talk about surviving, and, like, they just start sobbing. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think, something that no one ever expected to live through. Yeah. And for those who did live through it and were displaced, has there been assistance that has gone out? Was there any financial or, or housing aid for those who lost their homes? Yes. Right after a disaster, once the state declares an emergency and the federal government approves that, the Federal Emergency Management Agency can come in and start working with the state. And usually the Small Business Association is there. The housing department comes in as well. But FEMA is kind of the main chair of disaster response. And they can provide direct temporary housing assistance. They will give hotel vouchers. Usually they give people who applications they approve, $700. But people without insurance, people who are renting, and most other people uh, that I've met for Ian, they really just get the short end of the stick. They get a lot less usually in reimbursements. And a lot of the times their applications are denied because they don't have the correct paperwork. And it's really just a difficult full-time job for people with barriers to access to English, technology, things like that, to get disaster aid. So when the Lopez's are 
seeing people in canoes. They're in this incredibly flooded freeway zone. Where do they go? What? Where were they between that moment and when they arrived at the motel? So remember that in an instant, there are all of a sudden thousands of people like the Lopez family who immediately need housing, who immediately lost their cars, whose jobs are unknown. So all at the same time, these thousands of people are spreading out into the area trying to find housing, trying to find a new job, trying to find a new car, trying to find resources. So things are very scarce very quickly. And people with these cushions, people who have family members, people who have good, reliable jobs, people who have savings accounts, they have money, they can pay more, they can get these things first, and it sifts very quickly. And the people like the Lopez family, you know, they fall, and it's much more difficult for them to bounce back and get into and find housing, to find a new car, Mm -hmm. things like that. So what they did was they went to Walmart and they bought the biggest tent they could find. Wow. It was was a big tent. It was the most expensive tent that they had at Walmart at the time, which was like almost close to 500 bucks. Uh Uh-huh. And it was big. And how many people were in there? All of us. The dogs, kids. And they went to a friend's house and they set it up in their friend's yard. And they lived that way, they say, for about six weeks. Wow. When we were in the tent... A friend of mine let me borrow his generator. So I, I went out and I bought a portable AC and I bought some air beds. And, you know, we had a TV in there and we tried making the best out of it. But talking about this experience is still very raw mm-hmm. for, for George. His five-year-old Logan who's this very astute, serious, quiet kid who you can tell has seen and been through a lot. It was just like, I don't even like thinking back to that day. I don't even like Because he was, he was old enough. When we pulled into the house, Everything was just damaged. And then when we went back to go get our stuff, where he's seen all his toys just piled up in the freaking mountain, all destroyed, you know? And we would drive, we still drive around there like we had our foot, we had our football game. And he goes, Oh, daddy, that's the house, the, the hurricane house, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just, I had to tell him for the longest that we were camping. He did not, you know? And George just feels this deep, heavy shame and guilt that he got them in this position and he mm. can't get them out of it. Mm. Brianna, you're describing the Lopez family moving from their tent that they've been sleeping in in their friend's yard. They were there for six weeks. How do they end up going from there to the El Rancho Motel? George had been on Google and somehow found the El Rancho. So they roll up around Halloween. All six of them packed into his rattling old Ford (laughs) truck. And he goes up to Dana McGrath, who owns the motel. I'll give you George's story. This was really one of the cool ones. And Dana also told me this story 
when I was there in September about the family because it just like really stuck out with him as being very emblematic of the Hurricanian post-disaster world. They showed up and we had just revamped the cabins and they showed up with all, all those people in that truck. And I said, so where are you staying now? And he told me, in somebody's yard. And I said, great. Well, come here and look at this. And I showed him a cabin. He said, oh, it's really great. I can't afford it. And I said, well, tell me how much you can afford. And I did this to everyone. I have $1,000 to my name. I will give it to you for a week. And I said, well, can you afford nothing? Hmm. He said, what? Can you afford nothing? Yes. Move in. And Dana told me it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. He was like, what's $1,000 to me? Nothing really. But what was $1,000 going to do for him to feed the family? It's everything. Mm-hmm. My, I have an open room. What am I losing or gaining? Nothing. Just take it. Mm-hmm. So the family moves in that day, and compared to the tent that they had been living in, they were just so grateful to be in that room. How is it that the motel became this incredibly important, special place, not only for the Lopez family, but other hurricane refugees who started staying there? This was my favorite part of the reporting, because when I first visited, I thought it was just this happenstance, lucky break that these people all got, that they found this motel. And the owners, Dana and his wife, Peggy, were really welcoming. But that's not the case. They have been doing this for storm victims since Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Wow. When a family who had been living in their car drove up and were like, hey, how much for a night? Mm -hmm. And they have done this after every hurricane. There's actually still someone from a woman from Hurricane Irma in 2017 living in room number seven. Oh my gosh. So they are very experienced at being landlords to disaster victims and they take them on not knowing how long they're going to be there and not really knowing much about their backgrounds. They don't do credit checks or background checks or anything like that. They just mm-hmm. know that they are in need and that they, if they have rooms that they will give them to them, so. Brianna, given how much time you've spent with Dana, watching him work, watching him interact with these families, what is your sense of why he does it? What motivates him to do this? Dana was very adamant to me that this was not charity. There are no guests in this motel today. There are no vacationers. If they weren't here, this would be empty, wouldn't it? So I'd be taking the same hit, wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. So it's no great deal to put somebody there who can't afford the rates and let them pay what they can afford while they build enough to find a home. Mm -hmm. The motel guests, the Hurricane Ian disaster victims, they're still paying rent. You Mm -hmm. know, they pay $1,200 to $2,000 a month which sounds like a lot of money, but for the area, it's it's not when you mm-hmm. factor in first and last month's rent, security deposit, things like that. So he's giving them a break. But again, he, he does it because he can. So while it looks like a, like a deep charitable act, 
if it were going to be empty anyway. It's business. Yeah, what am I losing by doing the right thing? He sees the world around him changing. He sees new development coming in and the cost of eggs, the cost of gas, the cost of living skyrocketing. And people like the Lopez family and others in his motel, their incomes haven't risen at that rate. Mm -hmm. People on fixed incomes, on Social Security, their checks have not risen at the rate that they need to to be able to survive in the Fort Myers area. So he sees this all going on and, you know, he's lived there since the 80s. And his place is really the one of the only ones they can afford. And he wants to keep it that way. At the same time, and this is the complicated part, he wants them to leave. He doesn't mm. want them to have to stay in his motel. Like he, he looks for jobs for them. He looks for apartments for them. And there's nothing, there's nowhere for them to go is what he kept reiterating to me. And, and telling me in his office... He asked me these really difficult questions, which I didn't have the answer to, which was, what happens to them Mm. if we don't take them in? None of them can pay what it costs to be here. What do they do when we die? You tell me. After the break the challenges families like the Lopez's face in moving on from the motel and finding more stable housing. We'll be right back. So, Brianna, before the break, you told us how the Lopez family lost their home in Hurricane Ian last year, and then they moved into the El Rancho Motel. At that point, how long were they expecting to stay there, and was there any part of them that thought this one motel room would turn into a permanent home? With disaster victims, it's this strange psychological shift that happens where you can only live day by day, yet Mm -hmm. you're thinking— way into the future of what you want your life to look like. Mm. How you get there, nobody knows. So, no, I don't think any of them intended for this to be their home. You know, there's a man I spent a lot of time with named Joe in room number one, and he can't imagine that he's lived in a motel for a year and that this has been his life, and yet he doesn't know where else he's going to go. And the Lopez family is, is similar. They have a lot of obstacles in their way, in their path to recovery that they can't really control and they can't do anything about. So yeah, they, what are what are some of those? So the cost of housing has risen dramatically. Since Ian, I think it's been about a 30% jump, but in a, a one-room apartment costs about $2,500. So compared to, again, what the Lopez family was paying for their massive trailer with a yard, $1,200, That's a huge leap. Mm -hmm. And they don't have savings. They don't really have family in the area that they can lean on. And they also have complicated, messy backgrounds. Nemesis has several evictions on her record from when she was 18. And George has a criminal record, several charges. He was very open about his past and was talking to me and our photographer about what he went through when we were watching his son, Logan, play football one night. But my charges are all aggravated battery. Yeah, all violent charges. 
like have getting, a, getting in fights? Huh? Like getting in fights with people? Yeah, gang fights, uh, fights with people, a lot of fights. So all these factors are huge hurdles for a family of a disaster to overcome mm-hmm. when agencies have to check your credit, check your background, when they're trying to place them in commercial trailer parks and the park's like, we're not going to take these people. Yeah. So it's hard. Yeah. So now at this point, a year out from the storm, is the Lopez family getting any kind of government assistance or disaster relief given where they still are? It's like for many other victims, this frustrating waiting game. They've been playing phone and email tag with FEMA, they said, as well as a state disaster agency. But Nemesis was very frustrated and exhausted. She broke down about it after work one day. Um, I'm still waiting for, like, help with continued rental assistance. Like, United Florida told me that. She was just already so tired, and she came home, and the house was messy, and the kids were screaming. TV is blaring per usual. It was it was just a, yeah, loud, stressful situation. It's kind of hard to hear, but, you know, what she told me was that she's waiting for temporary housing and she's waiting for a reimbursement for the truck that hasn't been working from the, the floodwaters, they said, for about $3,000. And again, it's this push-pull where she really wants to get out of this motel. Like, it's really wearing on her. But she is working 80 hours a week and pushing herself to the limits because she doesn't want to lose the motel room. That's why, like, I work so hard. You know what I mean? Like, to make sure that I pay everything because I don't ever want to be living in a tent with my family again. You know what I mean? It wasn't because I wanted to die. And again, remember that the Lopez family is is not a unique situation. There are many other people in their position in Florida alone, and we we don't know how many because the federal and the state governments haven't really been keeping track. And the trailers from the federal government, they're scarce, and they, they take a while to come online. They have to find places to put them. Contracts have to be made, you know, whole infrastructure set up. So it's just like a really long, complicated process that takes a long time to figure out. And it also really clarifies in a heartbreaking way why they are still living in this motel, right? A year later, between the housing market, everything else that you just listed, this is why they're still in the motel. Right. And Dana, they told me they are so grateful that he's, like, worked with them. Dana has been nothing but an angel to us. That man, there's not too many people that exist like him. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very, very nice. Like, he's put up with us. Um, We've been short many times, and he's never, hey, you guys got to tie none of that. I understand. I know the situation. We're all going to get better. This is why, again, the El Rancho is just, I think, a really important snapshot of of this post-disaster survival. And even as they are surviving, they have a room, they have a roof over their head. How is the Lopez family coping with everything that they lost in the storm, with so many parts of their lives upended? 
how are they doing given how long they've been displaced for? They are, again, they are surviving. It's really difficult to try and build any type of life, any forward-looking plan in Mm -hmm. this position, and they're doing the best that they can. George gets really emotional talking to me about this, especially, again, the impact on his son, Logan, his five-year-old, who still has to go to school, who still has football practice. And the biggest thing that keeps coming up when George talks about the Hurricane Ian and his, the impact on him is the loss of his eldest son, Giovanni. It's tough. Yeah. It is. So no, it's tough. Yeah. George told me about this painful experience when we were at Logan's football practice that that night. Last spring, they got into a big blowout over their living conditions. Giovanni, who's in high school, was sleeping in the kitchen, and just the tensions were running high, emotions were raw, and they got into this big screaming match, and Giovanni left and went to live with his mom. You know, he had nowhere to go, you know, to go relax and stuff like that. It was tough for him. Giovanni, me losing Giovanni has been, like, probably harder than the hurricane. Like, that hit me harder than anything. Like, I have never experienced uh, an anxiety attack. I didn't even know what the hell an anxiety attack was until my son left. I caught myself breathing real hard, having to run the hell out of the apartment. Like, literally, like, like, no lie, brother. Like, I have to get out of here. Like, in, in that same emotion, like, I, like, I got to go out and breathe. I got to get out of here. George had Giovanni when he was really young. So they've been through a lot together. And the fact that this hurricane fractured their relationship is killing George. Mm. Um, Nemesis also, she's 29. She, you know, you can just tell from her eyes that she is just barely holding on. Mm. She works 80 hours a week. On average, um, I don't know when Nemesis sleeps. She goes from working at the Publix grocery store to the gas station right down the road. And in between that, she's trying to keep her house together. So how sustainable is this? I mean, they've already been doing it for a year, and I, I don't know how much longer a human can go on living in that kind of stress and working that hard and dealing with that much. It just hurts me more because I f***ed up my life, you know, like, I've made so many mistakes that I can't do nothing to help my family now, you know, and it's just, it's just stress. Nobody understands me. They just see a, a young Hispanic strong, you know, they don't know what I'm going through inside or nothing, you know, it's just, so I just try to keep it positive and a smile as much as I can, but. I mean, you're incredibly strong. I and- try. I tried. You know, George admittedly said that he's not a great husband. He wishes he could be a better father. Nemesis wasn't with me. I don't know where the hell I would be right now. You know? Yeah. I have so much to thank my wife, and I'm such a piece of husband to her. That is, I'm not, she doesn't deserve none of this. And Hurricane Ian just made all of these problems so much greater for for him and the emotional trauma of just living through this hurricane and then, like, 
the stresses it's put on the family and then his own feelings as like a man and a that's supposed to be a caretaker and can't. It's all, you know, meshed in there in this 400 square foot yeah. room. Yeah, like trying to survive a storm, keep a roof over your head. Brianna, given the time that you spent at the El Rancho Motel, what do you feel like you have learned about the needs for people recovering from climate catastrophes, whether it's Hurricane Ian or the others that you've covered? What do families need to really be able to get back on their feet? Housing is the linchpin. That is a stabilizing force Mm -hmm. for any family, having a home. So if we can figure out a way to get housing set up in mass for victims, no questions asked, and let people get into homes and just relax and, like, be able to call something their own Mm -hmm. after losing everything, I think that would go a long way because then they have an address. Then they have a place they can, like, put their stuff that they were able to salvage, and they can maybe then move on to the next thing, Mm -hmm. which is finding a job, getting their kids into school. So I think housing, if we can figure out a way to get small mobile homes, small home, whatever, set up for disaster victims in the wake of a disaster, I think that would go a long way. And at this point, what do you think is next for the Lopez family? I think getting a trailer would go a long way for them that's a lot less money than they're paying. And actually, I had reached out to Unite Florida, which had promised the family a trailer. And Unite Florida is the state's disaster portal that connects victims with resources. And Unite Florida told me that they had offered them one months ago, but Nemesis couldn't pass a background check. Mm. Again, pointing out the issues that so many people face recovering. But after I reached out, Nemesis and George told me that Unite Florida contacted them. Yeah, telling them to contact them. So hopefully they will be in a trailer sooner rather than later that they can all live in and maybe we'll see what happens from there. Wow. Well, Brianna, thank you so much for this reporting and sharing it with us. Oh, thank you for letting me share it. Brianna Sachs is a climate disaster reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick and edited by Robin Amer. It was mixed by Sean Carter. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>